Well, as we begin our series on the Beatitudes, let's take a moment right now to quiet ourselves, to be still, maybe close your eyes, maybe slow down your breathing by inhaling maybe up to six or seven breaths or seconds, and then exhaling for six or seven seconds, and invite Jesus into your mind, into your heart right now, and ask him to teach you something new and or maybe something to bring something that you've already known but to bring it afresh to you this morning as we begin this series in the beatitudes in this new year of 2021 take a moment And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are with us, that we're not alone. We thank you for this new year, 2021. And we pray, Jesus, that you would give us a vision for the year ahead. Would you give us clarity on what it means to follow you? God, might we become an obvious, potent presence of your love and light in this world. We thank you for what you're up to, and we pray more than anything, that we would trust you and that we would surrender ourselves completely to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question for you. And the question is this, what is your vision of the good life? What is your vision of the good life? Or put another way, what is your vision of a blessed life? What would you put hashtag blessed at the end of after some update from your life? You know, some of us maybe get this vision or we think of this vision of the good life as we look around at the world around us or maybe through social media, if we're honest, through social media and Facebook, we can see lots of examples of what someone might uh, describe or explain as a vision of the good life. But how about your vision of the good life? Where do you get a vision for the good life from? You know, one another way that we can maybe illustrate visions of the good life are when there are uh, campaigns happening or elections. You know, each leader presents a platform with their party about their vision for Canada over the next number of years. You know, that's their vision of the good life, the blessed life, what it would look like to be and live in Canada, to have different rules governing our society and laws governing our society, or for some less laws governing our society. You know, some of us, I think we would, when we think about the vision of the good life, maybe we've looked to mentors or leaders or relationships that we have of other people or, or maybe stories we've heard from the past of people who said, they lived a good life. I want my life to emulate or to be shaped by their lives. For some of us, it's going to be our family of origin, right? We grew up in a particular family. Some of us maybe are, are acting in rebellion against that family because of the vision of the good life that they had. But what is your vision of the good life? 
maybe a, a, a question to test us as how we might actually honestly answer that question is to ask the question, what do you most often pray about? Or what do you most often pray for? You know, are you, are you praying regularly for health? Are you praying regularly for provision or wealth? You know, I think if we're honest in the West, many of us spend a lot of time in our prayer focusing on these things, on health and our finances, the well-being of our children. It's not in essence that these things are bad as we'll come to discover, but is that and are those things truly the vision of the good life, of a blessed life to be healthy and to be financially stable? With that, let's look at what Jesus describes as the blessed people or what Jesus describes as a good life in the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5, verse 1. I'll read through for us. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them. Seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'll ask the question again, what is your vision of the good life? What is your vision of a blessed life? And the initial question to begin this series, does it align with the people that Jesus characterizes as those who are blessed? Now, as we begin this series this morning, I just want to provide an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount and then the Beatitudes 
in general, as we'll be over the next coming weeks working through each beatitude individually. I kind of think of this as if you think about being in a plane, maybe you've never been in a plane before and that's fine, but you can kind of imagine that in a plane, you know, you're many feet above the ground. And so when you look from a plane down, people are very, very tiny. Uh, buildings are much smaller. And so you kind of get a good vantage point of entire regions or cities. But when you're on the ground, you're, you're there, like you're on the pavement, the grass is under your feet and you can't see the bigger picture. And so over the coming weeks, we're gonna be on the ground, kind of on the pavement and on the grass of those particular verses of the Beatitudes. But in order for us to truly understand them, we also have to take a look back or come away from life on the ground and kind of come to life in the air a little bit to truly understand the Beatitudes, to understand a bit of the history that they're coming from and the context that they're coming from. The first thing then that we should really consider is, is what is this Matthew 5 to 7? What are these chapters? And these are Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew's account of, of the, one of the most well-known uh, and the, one of the best sermons, you could say, in the history of the world from Jesus. And this is Matthew recording a chunk of teaching that Jesus was giving. It's helpful for us then to also understand a little bit about Jesus as teacher, and what his teaching was characterized by or what it meant. And the first thing to think about is that Jesus, when he taught, he spoke uh, as, as a, somebody who represented the voice of God, Jesus, God himself. And so when Jesus speaks, as we'll see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as someone with authority. What that means is that Jesus, when he taught, didn't quote other people. You'll hear me this morning quoting other people. When Jesus spoke, as we'll see here in the teaching in the Beatitudes, he just spoke and he told people and he taught people. He wasn't quoting anybody else. And so when he taught, he taught as the voice of God to people. When Jesus taught, he also spoke with a prophetic voice, a prophetic voice looking into the future, understanding and knowing the future and the future about the kingdom of God and then coming it to bear in the present. So he was a teacher that spoke as the voice of God. He was also a teacher that knew the future and could speak in such a way and instruct people in such a way that the future could become to bear in their present circumstances. Thirdly, though, he was also a teacher who could be represented by his incredible wisdom. He understood truly how God's ways should instruct how we're to live in this world, that the best way for us and to live in this world is to understand how God created the world. And so when he taught, he brought incredible wisdom. And a fourth reality of, of Jesus' teaching, and when we listen to him, is the reality that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus understood his messianic vocation or his identity. And when he taught, he was calling people to live out his teaching in community, but then also empowered by the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright says this about the Sermon on the Mount in particular, Matthew 5 to 7. The sermon isn't just about how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that needs it so badly. And so this is Jesus, a teacher who spoke as the voice of God, a teacher who knew the future and was trying to bring the future to bear in the present reality, a teacher that truly understood how the world works best, and a teacher understanding his messianic vocation, calling people into community and to empower them by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So right away, as we come to Jesus teaching, there are a couple things that are going to challenge us. And so I'm going to go over a couple of these challenges as we go through here. But one of the challenges we immediately need to recognize and to ask ourselves is, do we take Jesus seriously? You know, what we're about to study are red letter. Jesus spoke these words. Do we take Jesus seriously? Do we take Jesus at his word? Second challenge for us is, are we prepared to live life with others in the church as we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit? You know, so often we read the scriptures in a very individualistic way, rather than seeing these words as an opportunity and an invitation into community. And then as we live these things in community to be empowered by the Holy Spirit that indwells inside of us, if we are truly followers of Jesus. So are we prepared, one, to take Jesus seriously and the things that he's teaching, and secondly, to live our life in community surrounded by other followers of Jesus who are also dependent upon the Holy Spirit? So that's a first, a word about Jesus in general and the characteristics of his teaching. But then secondly, let's go a little bit closer to the ground and look at the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount. Once again, Matthew 5, chapter 5 to 7, this incredible sermon now, the sermon in Matthew 5, verse 1, we read this. I've already read it, but I'll read it again. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Now, while there's some debate about who specifically Jesus is teaching here, some people believe it's just specifically his disciples. Other people believe that disciples are representative of anyone at that point that's listening. Other people say maybe there's a crowd. Certainly at the end of the sermon, we get an indication that there is a crowd there. So in in some way, we can understand, though, that Jesus is, is likely teaching his disciples and that there are then people who are gathering around him. He's on a hillside on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we read here, we can't miss this detail, that Jesus takes a sitting posture as he is about to teach. Now, this is important to understand because if Jesus had remained in a standing posture, his teaching would have been received as kind of an informal teaching. But as soon as he sits like a lawyer would in those days or like a formal teacher would, his teaching becomes formal and it becomes authoritative. And so Jesus takes a seated posture on this hillside and he teaches in an authoritative way to the people that are gathered around him. So that's a little bit about how the Sermon on the Mount begins, but let's look about how the Sermon on the Mount closes, which will also give us more detail. Matthew 7, verse 24 to 29, Jesus is looking back on what he has taught and this is what he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does not do them, will be like the wind, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them, as I said earlier, as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Therefore, what we can understand about this sermon 
is that this sermon is a comprehensive sketch of the teaching and the preaching message of Jesus. And the sermon also presents for us Jesus' moral vision and therefore summons us to follow him. Scott McKnight puts it this way in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount crystallizes what Jesus gave to his disciples as the new way of life. The kingdom way of life in a world surrounded by the power of brokers of empire. From the mountain, the posture of Moses, Jesus, Jesus utters forth God's will for kingdom people. And as Jesus descended, he gave those who heard the option of following. That same option stands before every reader of the sermon, you and me, of how will we respond to the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus. And so what are we to do with the Sermon on the Mount in general? Is, is we're to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be lived by students of Jesus or apprentices of Jesus. Now, this is where some people will struggle with the sermon. And what they'll do is they begin to pin grace and obedience against one another. They'll say, we don't need to follow what the Sermon on the Mount says because we have grace. And so therefore, we don't have to worry about the way that we live. But remember, here in the sermon, Jesus doesn't say, well, first grace, then obedience. He simply jumps right in. In fact, the proper way of thinking of this is to recognize that Jesus Christ died to enable you and me to live the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. We are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. Rather, we are told because you are a Christian, live like this. This is how Christians ought to live. This is how Christians are meant to live. It's kind of, if you were to think about a child growing up in the home of their parents, and the parents have an understanding of, of how their, their home, maybe the values, they have morals, they have ethics around their home. And they want their children to obey those ethics and those morals, their vision of the good life of what it looks like to live in their family. Now, they understand the child will likely disobey, as all children do. But that doesn't change the fact that they are still a child. And so as followers of Jesus, that does not change. The Sermon on the Mount, though, calls us to a way of living, an understanding of the world, characteristics that we are to be determined or described by or defined by. Another thing to understand then about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's intended to be a provocative and offensive. If the sermon or if the Beatitudes, as I've already read them, lose their provocativeness, it's likely due to our own softening, our own reductionism, and or our own recontextualization of the message. The sermon is intended to be provocative and offensive. It should challenge our thinking. It should challenge our way that we are living. And therefore, in response, if we think about the sermon and we first think about a response to it, the sermon is therefore going to turn from instruction to indictment. What do I mean by this? The sermon will ultimately become a mirror to our character and to our practice. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are forced to ask ourselves if we align with Jesus' teaching and his vision of the kingdom. 
What this also means, however, is that even though it's provocative and offensive, it's also evangelistic. What do I mean by that? Here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus teaching his moral and ethics of how the world works best under God's ways. And so anybody that is listening to it has to say, is this Jesus' vision for the good life? And then they have to naturally look at their own visions of the good life or visions of the good life that are all around them. And so it's evangelistic because someone might respond to the sermon and say, wow, this seems like the good way. This seems like a good way to live. This seems to make most sense of reality. And therefore the sermon calls people in and of itself to follow Jesus, to follow his way. Okay, so if that's the sermon as a whole, what about the Beatitudes in particular? And the Beatitudes, they come right at the beginning of the sermon. And what they are intended to do is immediately to get the audience's attention and our attention and to immediately force introspection. N.T. Wright says, Jesus takes us through the sound barrier where things begin to work backwards. Have you ever read the Beatitudes before? Maybe you haven't, but maybe take some time after this message to reread them. And just think about how reorienting these Beatitudes are and what Jesus defines as the people that are blessed. They're intended to get our attention and they're intended to immediately force introspection. The Beatitudes, secondly, are a radical revisioning of the kingdom of heaven or the norms of the kingdom of heaven, and therefore, the people of God. Warren Carter writes, In the Beatitudes, Jesus has the disciples imagine a different world, a different identity for themselves, a different set of practices, a different relationship to the status quo. Why imagine? Not because it is impossible, not because it is escapist, not because it is fantasy, but because it begins to counter patterns embedded from the culture of the imperial world. We have to think about the impact of the empire and culture in which Jesus is speaking these words and giving his sermon it's not so different as we think about our own cultures today and the challenge of Jesus' worlds to our own idols or to the own gods of our own culture. Think of the context, again, of the sermon and the Beatitudes in Jewish life at the time of Jesus' message. Speaking more about this, John MacArthur in his commentary writes, Most of the Jews in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to be, first of all, a military and political leader who would deliver them from the yoke of Rome and establish a prosperous Jewish kingdom that would lead the world. He would be greater than any king, leader, or prophet in their history. But Jesus would not allow himself to be mistaken for that sort of king. The thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the message and work of the king are first and most importantly internal and not external. And spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. His concern is for what men are because what they are determines what they do. And so this is what we'll come to see in the Beatitudes. There's less of a focus on what we do and more focus on who you and I are at the core. 
thirdly, what we come to see and understand of the Beatitudes is that there are radical revisioning of who is blessed, which forces us to ask the question, what does blessed mean? The Greek word for blessed here is makarios, and the best English translation is blessed or happy, but not in terms of how you and I in our world today view happiness. Here are a couple of descriptions of what blessed blessed means and would have meant in this culture at this time. First from John MacArthur, to be blessed is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. Blessedness is based on objective reality realized in the miracle of transformation to a new and divine nature. D.A. Carson, commenting on the same, says, Those who are blessed will generally be profoundly happy, but blessedness cannot be reduced to happiness. In the scriptures, man can bless God and God can bless man. This duality gives us a clue just what is meant. To be blessed means fundamentally to be approved, to find approval. Or Scott McKnight puts it this way, a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, listen to this, a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. And so who are the blessed ones, as we'll come to see? The blessed ones are those whom Jesus identifies. And what we'll also come to see is the one that is ultimately blessed by God is Jesus himself. And those whom he blesses are those who take on his ways, his manners, and his love, and then extend it to others. So as we look at the Beatitudes in particular as an overview of them, how do they challenge us or how are we to respond? Well, what we're going to come to understand as we look at each Beatitude in particular is that there is going to be a complete deconstruction of our beliefs about happiness and blessing and then an invitation towards true blessedness. The happiness of the Beatitudes is not about feeling good, but about being good. And being good is defined by Jesus and shaped by one's relationship to God through Jesus. For most people in the West, happiness is a right. The right to choose what we want, to have freedom, to do what we want. It's why so many of us are actually feel so constricted by lockdown. Because we've been told by our culture and society, do what you want, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. The Beatitudes will deconstruct our understanding of what blessedness and happiness are, but then they're going to invite us to a life of true blessedness as defined by Jesus. The Beatitudes will also challenge us to a radical vision of true Christian character. What does it truly mean to live out the teachings of Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus? It's a radical vision of true Christian character. All Christians are meant to be like this. 
They're descriptions of what every Christian person is meant to be. And what we'll come to understand is that they also describe the utter difference between somebody who is a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus who are following Jesus' ways and somebody that is not. The Beatitudes also is a radical vision of true Christian character that will then lead to radical dependence. What we'll come to see is that none of the descriptions in the Beatitudes are our natural tendencies. They are wholly a disposition which is produced by grace alone and the operation of the Holy Spirit in us. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, these beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for new birth, I am undone. And so it's going to be completely natural that as we go through the Beatitudes for you to feel and go, I can't do it. And in part, that's the point. Because as we understand of Jesus and how he taught is that we're intended to live this out in community and dependent upon the Holy Spirit to transform our character and to make us into the type of people that the Beatitudes describe. And finally, the challenge and a response to the Beatitudes is really an invitation for you and for me to the cross. Bonhoeffer wrote this, at the end of the Beatitudes, the question arises as to where in this world such a faith community actually finds a place at the cross. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. With him, they lost everything, and with him, they found everything. This reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke 9, verses 23 to 27. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are an invitation for us to the cross, to a countercultural way of life, to countercultural formation. And as they begin, as we saw as instruction, they'll turn to indictment when we must look in the mirror and say, who are the people that we are? Who are the people that we are? becoming? What is my vision of the good life? Is it health? Is it wealth, financial stability? Do I truly believe the teaching of Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. My prayer for our church family over these next few months is that we would begin to become the people that the Beatitudes describes. And that we would have a true vision of the good life, not based upon the culture around us or upon what we see on social media or upon what we see in politics, but that it would be based upon Jesus' vision of the blessed and the good life.
and that he would call us and that he'd woo us to this way of living. And so on this January 3rd, 2021, would you join me in this prayer? What a resolution. What a resolution to become the sort of person that the Beatitudes describes. Dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll jump into Beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a challenge already. I thank you, Jesus, for the teacher that you are. And I pray that we would listen to you and that we would take you seriously. And that your word would challenge and change us as we're empowered by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Jesus, that as we begin this new year, 2021, God, many of us have visions of what life could look like at the end of this year. But Lord, maybe some of these visions are not defined in any way by the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, but they're defined by our culture or upon the places that we're putting our hope apart from you. And so would you challenge us and would you woo us? Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you're already doing. We look forward to what you are going to do in us over the next number of months. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.